Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Fireside Chats. Here we go, Hireside Chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and with all the problems we have these days, wouldn't it have been nice if at some point we had at least tried to restore some faith in our corporate-rated institutions? Because when our politicians and media companies are reduced to PR mouthpieces for industry giants, the inmates truly are running the asylum. Regulators today do more to protect the profits of the big multinational corporations than they do to truly investigate on behalf of the people. And rarely do you find any major news source saying anything to conflict with those profits either. It creates a world where you really can't trust anything, from weed killer and water quality to cigarettes, cell phones, and pharmaceuticals. Many of us have a feeling that there might be more risks and consequences to these things than we realize. But who's doing the real investigating? Who's asking the critical questions? Well, they can feel few and far between, but when it comes to Monsanto, Roundup, and glyphosate, today we have one of the premier critical question askers and dedicated investigative journalists, Carrie Gillum. Carrie has spent 30 years covering corporate America, with the last 20 years focused on food, agriculture, and pesticides. She's written two great books on the subject, entitled Whitewash, The Story of a Weed Killer, Cancer, and the Corruption of Science, And most recently, the Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. She spent 17 years with Reuters and is now Research Director for U.S. Right to Know, an investigative nonprofit focused on public health issues, and it is a pleasure to have her with us. The weed killer critic from Kansas, the big agriculture agitator and investigative journalist extraordinaire, Carrie Gillum, welcome to the higher side. My gosh. Well, thank you (laughs) for that introduction and thanks for having me. Of course. It is a true pleasure to have you here. Thanks for doing it. Whitewash has been on my shelf for a couple of years now. And when I saw the Monsanto papers coming out, I thought it would be a great opportunity because you really are dedicated to this space and super knowledgeable about our corporate pesticide dependent food system. And few people really dive into one thing like this for as long as you have. What kicked this all off and kept you engaged with it as long as you have been? Well, yeah, thank you. That's a question a lot of people ask me, I guess. Uh, It was not by design. I was working in Atlanta, covering big bank holding companies. 
And Reuters, the international news outlet where I spent most of my career, asked me to move to Kansas and start covering food and farming and these really interesting novel crops that Monsanto had just rolled out, genetically engineered crops or GMOs. And this was in, you know, the late 1990s. And I thought it was a really terrible idea. I didn't really want to trade my, you know, blue business suits and high heels and, you know, nice lunches with powerful business people for, you know, boots and jeans and hanging out in farm fields, but made the move anyway. And, you know, really dug in, so to speak. And yeah, this has become my work and also my passion, I guess, for more than 20 years now. Mm hmm. And I've heard you talk about that initial assignment before, and it's interesting to hear how big companies like Monsanto handle journalists. It seems like they love to roll out the PR machine first, give you a nice tour of the facility, all very surface level. But if a journalist actually does stray from their talking points, then they get very vicious very fast, right? Yeah, I mean... So this is what happens when you are a journalist, and particularly if you work for a very big news outlet, an influential news outlet, the companies that you're covering and writing about or organizations or institutions, you know, or the White House, I mean, want to woo you. They want to teach you, so to speak, the way to cover them. And they really want to direct the narrative. And, you know, that's to be expected. Right. And so, yes, Monsanto and other companies that were working in the agrochemical space, very big seed and chemical companies, invited me in. And I've spent a lot of time at Dow and DuPont, Monsanto's headquarters in St. Louis, with their top executives. And they really did spend a lot of time trying to teach me the ropes. And I really appreciated that because I didn't have a very, I had really no background whatsoever in covering crops and chemicals and agriculture and the environment. So there was quite a learning curve. And it's important to understand the corporate perspective, obviously. But as a good journalist, you need to understand the bigger picture. And so I also made it my priority to spend a lot of time with farmers and with scientists and with, you know, people involved in grain handling and distribution and people involved in environmental work, you know, to understand how the crops and chemicals were impacting water quality and air and soil health and biodiversity. So you really are trying to understand this from all facets and all perspectives. And you're right, as I learned more and came to understand that everything wasn't just completely, you know, rosy and fabulous and wonderful, as the corporations tried to tell us, they became quite unhappy with my reporting. And the farther I strayed from, I guess, just parroting their propaganda, the more they tried to discredit me, harass me, harass my editors. Uh, it, you know, in the late, gosh, well, 2012, 13, 2014, really intensified. And of course, this was around the time when there was a big push to get GMO labeling in the United States. And there was a big push uh, to look harder at this chemical, glyphosate, which is part of Monsanto's Roundup herbicide and actually has become or is the most widely used herbicide chemical in the world. And there was so much science that had come to bear showing that there was a real harm associated with this widespread use of this chemical. And I had been writing a lot about that. And yeah, I came under quite a bit of attack and 
I'm sure if any of your listeners Google my name, they might find some pretty astonishingly awful things written about me. (laughs) We learned through litigation and discovery that Monsanto had put together several strategies and plans to try to discredit me, including Google search engine optimization and manipulation so that people who would search for my name would get directed to sites that Monsanto controlled. So very interesting journey it's been, certainly. (laughs) Absolutely. That is something that I think can't be overstated, that it's all about narrative control and they don't actually address a lot of the science that's being presented directly. It's more about, well, how can we engage in character assassination. And I have heard you mention in a previous interview, I think, a Detractors for Hire website as an example of one of those fake websites that kind of presents you as like, I make my money shitting on things, so hire me and I'll do what you need done. And that's kind of how they make the perception look like you're just out to get these poor big corporations. Yeah, I mean, again, one thing that I've learned or become all too aware of is that there is a, and Monsanto certainly didn't invent this strategy. This is something that really looks like it originated in the tobacco industry many years ago, but has been employed also by pharmaceutical industry, oil and gas to a degree, other large chemical companies, but certainly Monsanto and the agrochemical industry and the way it works, what we found through the document trail if you will, is that a company that wants to protect its image or protect its product, and there's certainly a lot of evidence that you know this product is harmful or dangerous, they can pay these groups, we call them front groups, that look like they're independent. They look like they're independent, authentic, scientific organizations, and the company can support them financially and give them directives about who to discredit, who to attack, who to harass, who to lobby, what things to do and say to benefit the company. And it all gets carried out sort of surreptitiously so that consumers or your listeners or policymakers see these things written by, for instance, a group called American Council on Science and Health. Sounds very important, right? And sciencey. But you'll find, if you dig through internal documents and communications, that Monsanto and other companies were funding this group. In exchange, this group then would write things defending Monsanto's products and attacking anyone who raised a red flag or pointed to research showing harm with these chemicals. So, yeah, I mean, I'm one person. There are New York Times reporters who've been attacked by this group scientists, lawyers, others, they write completely false things about people like me. And it's frightening that this goes on. But, you know, it's a strategy that must work for them or they wouldn't keep doing it, right? Right, right. The uh, old industry playbook passed along from tobacco to oil, as you say. Yes. And it's getting more fine-tuned all the time and harder to identify, which is really the scary thing in today's world. And to get into the glyphosate issue itself, I think this audience is already pretty aware of the basics, but give us a little bit of history on Monsanto, if you could. What are some of the important things for people to know? 
Sure. Well, the first thing to say, I suppose, is that Monsanto really is no more, at least as a standalone company. Monsanto was purchased by Bayer, the German pharmaceutical company, in 2018 for $63 billion. Monsanto's CEO and, and top executives were brilliant, in my opinion, in getting out while they could. When the deal closed in June of 2018, the first trial was just getting underway. And this was a trial brought by one of what are tens of thousands of people in the U.S. who claim that their exposure to these glyphosate-based herbicides caused them to develop non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And Bayer, saddled with this litigation, has agreed now to pay out about $16 billion. And that still doesn't settle the litigation. They're just still struggling to try to figure out how to put this behind them. But Monsanto has a long history. They came around in the early 1900s, and they've been an industrial chemical provider and were involved in providing chemicals for warfare, and then shifted over to agriculture. And their baby, their top seller, was launched in the 1970s, and this was glyphosate, patented herbicide, that became, as I said earlier, the most widely used weed-killing chemical on the planet. And people probably best know it as Roundup. Farmers use it on their crops, on GMO crops, as well as an array of other things that are not genetically engineered. It's also used, has been used by homeowners, you know, school grounds, cities, parks, playgrounds. It's used in forestry management and utilities on their right-of-ways. It really has become pervasive in our world, and our government scientists have documented it in not only food and water and air samples, but in rainfall, because it is so ubiquitous now. It's surface waters as well. It's really everywhere, and it is in, as I've written in my book, which people find most alarming, residues of this weed killer are probably in your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and certainly in your urine and bodily fluids. Hmm. Right. I think it's something like 90% of human blood and urine samples this has been found in? Well, that number, <laughs> it depends on who you ask and what sampling you're looking at. Of course, uh, of course. But yeah, but if you get your urine tested, it's pretty likely that you're going to find this weed killer in there. Mm. And baby food too, right? I mean, the corporate baby food industry to me, it feels a lot like the pet food industry. Are they using the best products? Or are they using these big corporate GMO crops just like they do in the pet food, in the baby food? It seems like uh, there's been a lot of red flags in baby food in the past few years that I can remember, but this would be another one. Glyphosate seems to be in there or other pesticides even at levels that are kind of scary to the experts. Very scary. Yeah. I mean, this has been something that I became particularly interested in and focused on pesticide residue data. And for a very long time, our Food and Drug Administration and USDA, two agencies that are supposed to check food samples for pesticide residues for 30 years, skipped testing for glyphosate, just flat out refused to do it. And The Government Accountability Office hammered them in 2014 and said, again, you know, this is the most widely used weed killer. Why are you not testing for this? I had been asking that question for, you know, over 10 years. Every year when a new report would come out, why are you not testing for this? 
I've been able to get data. I should say the FDA finally did start doing some limited testing, looking for glyphosate in food, and of course does find it. But I've been able to get internal FDA documents showing the frequency of this. And one story that really garnered a lot of attention was an FDA scientist who was testing baby oatmeal, baby food oatmeal products, and was finding these glyphosate residues at high levels in all of these baby cereals. Really alarming. There's also been studies that show this weed killer in formula, you know, because a lot of infant formula is made with soy. And of course, soy is one of the genetically engineered crops that's designed to be sprayed directly with glyphosate. So you have residues that are found in this infant formula. It's found in honey, even in you know, organic honey, <laughs> and an array of crackers and cereals and other snack foods. But as you said, it's only one pesticide commonly found in our foods. The most recent FDA report to come out, which came out in late 2020, they do this every year, but the most recent one documented 212 different pesticides found in food samples. Wow. Wow. And there is something to be said about pollinators too. As you say, it's in organic honey. There's a lot of talk about the bees, saving the bees, the whole house of cards will fall apart if something happens to the bees. But it apparently has a a pretty damning effect on bees and monarchs and just that part of our ecosystem, right? Yeah, I mean, glyphosate in particular has been found to be damaging to the monarch butterfly population. Monarchs are known to be not only an iconic sort of, you know, image, North American image representing wildlife and beauty, but they are very important pollinators. And they have been on a market decline that has been shown to be directly tied to this widespread use of glyphosate. And the companies have acknowledged this to a degree and have made some noise about trying to do something to mitigate this, planting different species of flowers and plants to try to help sustain the monarch population. But that's just one sort of element of pesticide implications that have been harmful for pollinators. You see a marked decline in honeybee populations as well that are tied to not only glyphosate in particular, but neonicotinoids, which is a class of insecticides that has been shown to be a culprit in a very market decline in insect populations, specifically honeybees. So, you know, this is something that's been noted by the United Nations, as well as scientists around the world, that we are seeing this very pervasive rise in pesticide use, not only in the United States, but around the world. And you're seeing sort of the canary in the coal mine or, you know, the red flag. You're seeing really sharp declines in bird populations. You're seeing sharp declines in insect populations. And you're seeing a whole array of health problems in humans that are tied directly to pesticides. So if we care about human and environmental health, we really need to care about pesticide use. Indeed we do. And I'm originally from Jefferson County, Missouri, which is not that far from Creve Corps. And when I grew up, I had heard a lot of worship for Monsanto and the local chemical companies that have their bases in St. Louis and Creve Corps. But 
I learned from the Monsanto papers that it wasn't always like this. You mentioned that at one time Monsanto was known as Monsantin and that so many protests were happening at their headquarters in Creve Corps that the Creve Corps City Council passed an ordinance prohibiting protesters from standing on the median outside the entrance. And it's like, wow, will of the people, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly that was something I learned in attending, you know, different events and meetings and, you know, even farmers, even farmer groups attending conferences sponsored by Monsanto and eating and drinking food, you know, funded by Monsanto would sort of, you know, whisper to me, you know, yeah, you know, Monsanto's what we call them, Monsatan. And that was largely because Monsanto really garnered a reputation of not only they loved and they wooed their farmer customers, but any farmer that they thought wasn't really falling into line, if they, farmers who they thought might be using their patented seeds without paying the license fee and purchasing them, they would go after these farmers and file lawsuits. And Monsanto's always been a very aggressive company in terms of going after anybody that stands in their way. And I think that's how they got the name Monsatan. There are also, of course, activist groups and others around the world who really have seen this company as pushing deadly products and wanting to try to shut them down. So, yes, it's quite a name, quite a nickname, right? Yes, I love that kind of stuff. And so your first book is called Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. And it's that last part that I think is the most important thing to drive home. How did they corrupt the science? Besides just refusing to do the studies, there's probably a lot more to say about this. And I really hope the message gets through to people because I think this is not just an isolated incident. It certainly is not, right? Again, in almost every aspect of this, Monsanto's conduct and what they've engaged in that I would consider wrongful conduct or wrongdoing is seen by in other companies, you know, pushing other chemicals or other products. Monsanto's sort of the poster child, if you will, for pushing bad products and how to perfect that. In terms of the corruption of science, I mean, there are so many examples. I mean, one of them is that they engaged in ghostwriting, scientific research. And this is papers and research studies that were published and pushed forward and given to regulatory agencies around the world to say, look, this chemical is totally safe. It doesn't cause cancer. It doesn't cause reproductive harm. You know, you can spray it directly on food crops. It's not going to be a problem. Best thing out there, safest thing you've got, and here's a paper to prove it, an independent paper that we didn't have anything to do with. This is what Monsanto would say. And yet we've learned through, again, freedom of information documents that I've obtained, EPA archives, litigation documents that have come out, internal Monsanto emails, etc., that the company wrote many of these papers. Their own scientists would be heavily involved in dictating what these papers were going to say. And then they would essentially cover that up or lie about it and present them to the world as independent papers. And the hypocrisy that has been shown through their internal emails is just, to me, still just you know jaw-dropping. They talk about all of the time and effort that they're going to put into ghostwriting a 
they use the word ghostwriting. They talk about internal employee annual reviews, and you're going to get bonus points because you ghostwrote this paper. They celebrate the ghostwriting of a paper that they say is going to be their defense of glyphosate around the world, and they're all going to have a great celebration. They spent so much time on this independent paper. So this is one element of the corruption of science. You know, there are others. You see them paying the editors of scientific journals. There was one editor that they were paying $400 an hour as a consultant. You know, this is an editor who's supposed to be giving an unbiased look at research that's coming into the journal to be published and sent around the world. You know, this sort of thing. There are many, many examples of that. But then you also see them with regulators, with the EPA. You see them manipulating EPA management. So you see internally EPA's own scientists saying very early on, you know, I found documents from the very early 80s where scientists were saying, this looks like it causes cancer. You know, this is causing all of these tumors in these experimental mice, and this is oncogenic, and this could be a problem. We need to classify this as such. And you see Monsanto saying, no, 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 that's not the way this is going to happen. You're not assessing it the way we want you to. And you see a lot of pushback. And then you see EPA management eventually siding with Monsanto and stifling the research from its own scientists. And that, very importantly, has gone on, as I said, from the beginning of the EPA. And I've documented that in my books and other work and so have other people. But just recently, just this summer, summer of 2021, we've had four EPA whistleblowers, four scientists come out publicly with lawyers backing them with documents and emails and audio recordings exposing EPA management for doing exactly this with a number of companies. They're accusing them specifically of deleting language that identifies cancer connections to chemicals, deleting language that shows that certain products cause developmental toxicity in kids, neurotoxicity, and then trying to shut up and reassign scientists to try to stand up to management. So the corruption runs rampant through the EPA. I've seen a bit of it inside USDA, FDA, and CDC as well, sadly to say, in my career. Um, Again, there's so many examples. There's so many scientists. These are not the only four people who have come out of the EPA saying this. There have been many others. And we really need to figure out a way to get this cleaned up. And the Biden administration, Congress is supposed to be investigating. The Biden administration has been called to address this. You know, this is a very urgent public health necessity to clean up the EPA. (laughs) And I'm sure they're going to prioritize it like that. But I think this stuff is super fascinating and important. I've heard the term regulatory capture used before when these industries, they know exactly who is supposed to be regulating them. And they get in there with bribes or just a revolving door of putting people in positions there and then promoting them and giving them kickbacks and all the golden parachute stuff. It's a real mess. And there's a lot of people who still hang on this false sense of security that we have regulatory agencies out there. So it must be all fine. If it wasn't fine, somebody would tell me somebody would take this off the market. But it's just such a mess now that you really can't trust anything. (laughs) 
I, it is very difficult. It is very difficult to trust. I think the EPA's credibility is completely eroded. You know, just from what I've seen and from the evidence that's been brought forward and the documentation, there really is no credibility there. And it is a symptom of longstanding sort of, as you laid out, revolving door, political appointees, pressure from lobbyists who pressure lawmakers in Congress, and then they pressure certain people within the agency. You know, one really good example that your listeners might be familiar with is the insecticide chlorpyrifos, which has been shown to be damaging to babies' brains who are exposed to it, and their primary exposures through diet. The EPA's own scientists have said there's no amount of this in food and water that is safe for kids to be exposed to. Not even the most minuscule amount can be considered safe. It's been banned from the household market, but it's still allowed to be used in agriculture. It's still allowed to be in our food and in our water. And the primary reason for that is because when it was scheduled to be banned in 2017, finally, Dow Chemical went in and sat down with the White House and gave a million dollars to the Trump inaugural fund. Trump had just been elected and said, we really don't want this ban to go forward. And the Trump EPA said, okay, it won't go forward. And it didn't. And so you still have this chemical now here in 2021 being used in agriculture and being found in food and water. And it should be criminal for our children to have their brain development be hampered by this chemical for the sole reason that it makes a lot of money for a chemical company. Yes, I am so glad you used that example. I had that here in my notes because especially over the past couple of years, it seems like some people in this alternative community were captured by this narrative that Donald Trump was a long overdue hero out there fighting off the bad guys. And this is just an example that I would present to one of those people and be like, well, what about this? This is the swamp that should be drained. It's full of this chemical. And it just seems like everybody, no matter what side of the aisle, is for sale to the highest bidder. I think that's very true in Washington, D.C. I think Democrats and Republicans, you know, equal culpability when it comes to acting in corrupt fashion, acting, you know, in ways that are not protective of public health. You know, the Trump administration, you know, I think fighting the bad guys, you know, maybe they had a different idea of who the bad guys are or were. You know, they certainly rolled back a lot of environmental protections and bent over backwards in the Trump administration to appease corporate interests over public health. The party line, the narrative was, you know, we need to free business from all of these onerous and expensive regulations. So, you know, there are certainly people out there who applauded that public health professionals were not among those people <laughs> to a large degree. Because when you let companies like Dow or Monsanto or others dictate what's going to happen with certain chemicals and the widespread use and allowing them in food and allowing exposure to young children, it's not a good thing. And we see the evidence. If you look at cancer rates, they're rising in children. If you look at neurodevelopmental problems in children, ADHD and autism and pension deficit disorder and things like that. Those have been on the rise, clearly. Reproductive health problems in women lowered 
testosterone, lowered sperm counts, infertility, all of these things were seen increasing. And cancer in particular, now if you look at cancer data from the National Cancer Institute, almost 40% of men and women in the United States are forecast to get cancer in their lifetimes. 40%, you know, mm. <laughs> that seems ludicrous to me. I don't think that that should be something, and many scientists say the same thing. We shouldn't be okay with that. But the chemical companies and all tell us that we should be, that it's okay, that we can live with cancer. And all of these chemicals that are known to cause cancer are essential tools that we need. So the trade-off, you'll even see people out there saying that, you know, the trade-off is worth it. Mm-hmm. So I don't agree. <laughs> I agree with you. And on top of just manipulating the science and ghostwriting articles and studies that are supposed to look independent and having the EPA shut down certain studies on their behalf and all this kind of stuff. On top of all that, it's also so disheartening to know that so many major multinational corporations are putting poisons into the environment that it even blurs that. Like, it's hard to identify why are 40% of people going to get cancer? Is it glyphosate? Is it lead pipes delivering our water? Is it stuff in the water? Is it cell phone radiation? It just seems like we have so many things out there that every company can just avoid being guilty by just looking at other industries and be like, well, look at what they're doing. I think the problem is probably the cell phones. Well, I think the problem is the glyphosate. Well, you know, it's almost like we'll never unravel all this stuff because there's so much manipulation and pretty much across the board with multinational corporations that are household names, they're putting out products that are harmful, at least not helpful. And that's true. I mean, one thing that makes it really difficult to prove or to lay a finger on, you know, this chemical caused this disease in this individual, because we all are exposed to so many different things now in our world. You know, PFAS, these chemicals that were pushed so much by Dow that are found in, you know, firefighting foam and Teflon and, uh, you know, stain resistant products and things like that. You know, those have been found to be just incredibly dangerous and detrimental to our health, and they are everywhere. So, you know, trying to avoid toxins in our world right now is incredibly difficult to do. I don't think that means we just throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. That seems to be the position the EPA has taken, is that if you want a modern society with all of these different privileges and things, then you're just going to have to embrace that it's going to be really dangerous and that you're going to have polluted water and polluted air and polluted food and polluted soil and you're going to suffer from disease. But hey, here's a pill the pharmaceutical company is going to provide you so you can live with it. You know, that's sort of the narrative right now that we're living under. There are a number of people who want to fight back against that, but there are some very big, powerful companies, obviously, that are fighting as well. I think we're really at a pivotal point. You know, what are we going to do? And you layer on top of that, you know, the recent news about climate and climate change and how the world is really at a tipping point in in that space. 
it's a dark time right now and we really need to get serious about it and educate ourselves and be engaged and try to create something better for our kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's also so many examples of the multinational corporations doing a bunch of damage and then blaming the people. I mean, here in California, they're telling people only water your lawn on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Meanwhile, there's these giant agricultural farms in the desert that are just spraying water all day, every day out onto the highway, anywhere like they're not conserving anything. And in a lot of cases, I think also like big oil, you know, people complain about the pollution of cars. Well, big oil suppressed other energy sources and gave us an oil only solution. And so a lot of times it's blame put on the people like, hey, you need to drive less or or do this less. And it's like, well, we haven't been given a lot of choice. And these big companies are so huge that the damage they're able to do at scale, it's like, <laughs> good luck telling an individual they're going to make a real difference when stuff like that's going on. Definitely. It's a scary time, as you said. A lot of countries are trying to push back. I think I, you don't really see this in the United States, but Mexico, Thailand, different countries in Europe, Asia, there are a number of governments and leaders who are trying to put their finger on this and push back and say, we need to do something. I mean, Mexico in particular, there was a, I don't have the quote in front of me, but the leadership in Mexico has pushed back and said, we're going to ban certain chemicals and we're going to ban these GMO crops and we're going to ban glyphosate and we need to protect our agriculture, our health, our environment. You know, we're going to do this for the people. And you rarely see that, you know, but the response has been from the United States. Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> Basically, you've had the chemical industry work with the State Department and USDA to try to intimidate and threaten Mexico with trade sanctions and problems to force them to take these chemicals and crops that they don't want. And you saw the same thing in Thailand. Thailand moved to ban chlorpyrifos, which we talked about, glyphosate and another chemical. Same thing, State Department chemical companies went in. They managed to keep glyphosate on the market in Thailand or flowing into Thailand. But but chlorpyrifos was banned. But so you are seeing, as I said, some countries, Germany, France, others have said they're going to ban these chemicals, ban glyphosate in particular. But not a lot at this point. Yes. And that is an excellent point. There's a lot to be said about the GMO geopolitics and the American government going to bat for these companies. And it's just kind of makes no sense for them to be using pressure and leverage to break down any and all resistance on behalf of Monsanto. It's like just a little strange to me. But I also saw in your bio that you are a contributing author to synthetic pesticide use in Africa. What could be said about pesticide use in Africa? Well, Africa is a really good example right now of the struggle that we're talking about. So you have a very large push by the Gates Foundation in particular to push GMO seeds and pesticides and really an industrial agricultural model upon the African people. And there's been a struggle over there. 
there are many struggles, obviously, with political stability and food and environment and just a lot of different things. And the Gates Foundation has tried to position itself or present itself as riding to the rescue on this. And they've tried to create some distribution channels and up and down a food chain to what they say is help smallholder farmers. What many organizations over there and people representing these African farmers say is that's not actually what's happening. What's happening is you're seeing smallholder farmers be pushed out and traditional agriculture and farming practices and traditions of that society be pushed aside to benefit the very large companies that are trying to come in. And this interest in agriculture by the Gates Foundation really sort of took off. It predated Monsanto coming into the Gates Foundation, but it really took off when a top executive at Monsanto joined the Gates Foundation in the early 2000s. And he was charged with directing their strategy on this. And since that time, the Gates Foundation has really adopted the narrative of Monsanto, that GMOs and chemicals like glyphosate are crucial to feeding the world, to feeding Africa. And the Africans are really trying to push back and say, no, thank you. (laughs) But, you know, so far it's not working out very well for them. Right. I think that the glyphosate and Monsanto GMO issues are so glaringly obvious that if this is the solution that the Gates Foundation is pushing, it makes me skeptical of any area that they're aggressively pushing for something. Yeah, it really dovetails or dovetails is not the right word. It is very similar to what we saw with GMO wheat in the United States to a degree. And that's, I guess, maybe a very microscopic example. But In the early 2000s, Monsanto was telling wheat farmers here in the U.S. that they needed a glyphosate-tolerant wheat, that they needed Roundup-ready wheat, and Monsanto was going to roll it out and sell it to them, and it was going to revolutionize the wheat market here in the U.S. And the wheat farmers said, no, we don't want it. We don't need it. It's going to interfere with our export market. We don't want Roundup-ready wheat. Don't roll it out. You're going to mess up our market. And I attended so many meetings for a few years during this fight. And Monsanto kept saying, yeah, you want it. And the CEO of Monsanto told me this was so important to their profit stream that they get farmers to take GMO wheat. It ultimately was shelved. You don't now have a GMO wheat out there. You do have contamination issues where wheat around the Northwest has been contaminated with Monsanto's experimental wheat and uh, caused a lot of disruption for certain farmers in the U.S. But you're seeing that same sort of playbook in Africa where they just push and push and push whether or not, you know, the actual farmers say that they want or they need it. So it really is a top-down driven agenda and certainly not something where they're trying to provide farmers with what they need. Right. That was going to be one of my questions is if farmers were ever asking for this product, because it seems like you mentioned in the history that they had made these dangerous chemicals for warfare. And it seems like they kind of just repurposed some of these tools for mass consumption for retail. 
Well, that's certainly what they did. Yeah. I mean, when we were no longer engaged in war, in this massive war strategy, you didn't have a need for something like Agent Orange to spray on the vegetation, right? To try to get rid of the hiding places for your enemy. So they needed to repurpose these things. And 24D, which was a part of Agent Orange, which was an element of that, 24D is an herbicide that is used now in agriculture and is pushed very heavily. And GMO crops have been designed to tolerate 24D just as they tolerate glyphosate so that you can spray 24D directly over the tops of crops, just like you spray them with glyphosate. And they're doing the same thing with another chemical called dicamba. They're just increasing the pesticide treadmill, if you will, pushing more and more of these products. And what happens, it's sort of a self-fulfilling cycle. As you push more herbicide use or even insecticide use, Mother Nature resists, right? So weeds develop resistance, insects develop resistance. As weeds become more resistant, farmers have found themselves needing to use more glyphosate or thinking they need to use more more chemicals. The weeds then become more resistant. They use more chemicals. It's just this vicious cycle that it's not going to end well. (laughs) The, The answer by the chemical companies is we'll just keep giving you more chemical solutions. The agronomists and scientists and many farmers say, no, we need a better solution. We need to get back to traditional practices. We need to be do more regenerative agriculture. We need to use other tactics than chemical warfare to grow our food. Absolutely. Absolutely. That was going to be obviously one of my questions. It is one of the big things that critics of this kind of stuff would always say is, well, Monsanto's feeding the world. It's kind of a necessary evil. And that's really just their PR as far as I'm concerned. But everything I've seen from regenerative agriculture and permaculture seems to show that there are much better ways and we should get away from monocrop agriculture and our yields would actually explode. And also, if COVID has shown us anything, it's that these big corporate supply chains can be shut on and off. And so... Local high quality food sources have never really been more important to support and foster. They're better for you. They're better for the health of your local community. It just seems like a no brainer. They, they also do produce better, it seems. Yeah, I mean, this whole talking point of we need our crops and chemicals to feed the world is really nothing more than that. It is a talking point. It's a propaganda point. And anybody who's really studied this issue with an objective view, knows that. There is no data to back the idea that without glyphosate, without pesticides, you know, you can't feed the world. The United Nations, a few years ago, actually authored a lengthy report addressing just that issue. They identified these global corporations and said that they were, you know, using aggressive unethical marking tactics, and they were lobbying, and they were, you know, using obstructive sort of strategies, but that really there was no data to support that. And that, in fact, pesticides, and I'll pull up the quote here if I can find it, pesticides, here's what they say, this is from the United Nations, have a catastrophic impact on the environment, human health, and society as a whole. 
and they say it is time to create a global process to transition toward a safer and healthier food and agricultural production. So that's what you see happening with regenerative agriculture. And there are farmer groups, you know, in the United States who are trying to do that. They've been struggling a bit. You don't see the types of subsidies and support, financial support from the U.S. government for regenerative and organic agriculture that you do for industrial and pesticide-driven agriculture. There's quite a lot of money our government provides to farmers who use pesticides and in industrial agriculture. So we really need to change the incentive structure. But yeah, these farmers have done the research and they find that getting away from the monocropping, using crop rotation, using cover crops, other tactics really boosts yield. You get a healthier soil, you get a more nutritious crop and product, and you get a robust yield. So the data doesn't lie, but the corporations often do. Right, right. And I halfway understand why people who are more of the right side philosophy go after regulation because it seems like so often these regulators are just protecting the monopolies of the major corporations. Not only are they doing damage control, but in agriculture, it seems like they are actively going after those small independent farmers, trying to choke out the last ones that are there, trying to, some say it's a strategy, drown them in regulation that only the big guys can actually adapt to. You know, people also say that happened during the COVID lockdowns. The McDonald's drive through never had to close, but the local mom and pop restaurants that maybe do have a farm to table process. Well, they couldn't adapt as quickly. I mean, who's eating inside of a McDonald's anyway? Everyone's using the drive through So that's allowed to happen, even though, you know, people inside are making your food. Who cares who you're sitting next to? Whatever. But it just seems like in so many areas, I almost empathize with those who focus their attention on those regulators because of choking out the little guy. And in the farm case of farmers, it's really dangerous because how many local organic farmers are in your area? Five? You better start giving them your money or they won't be there at all. And when they fold, good luck getting another one to actually spring up and take its place. Like when your already dwindling local options are gone, it will just be big corporate agriculture. And that's a scary thing. And so many people know glyphosate is a problem. They might try to buy organic in the grocery store, but do they know a local rancher or farmer? Because that's where you're really going to save this industry. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, if you have the means to look around and see if there's some local farmer, dairy operator that you can at least support in some way, or you can purchase from. Now, of course, you want to understand, you know, what practices are they using, right? I mean, if they're using chemical agriculture, you probably are just as good as buying conventional products in the grocery store. But if they're really working on regenerative agriculture, it's better not only for the food that they're growing, but for the environment that maybe is close to where you live, the pollinators, and again, the air and the water and the soil and all of that is going to be a healthier outcome when you aren't polluting the planet with these pesticides. But, I mean, to your point, money 
talks in Washington, right? That's the walk and the talk. <laughs> so, you know, very big lobbying groups, you know, they're funded by these big companies and, you know, it's how the money trickles down and how things happen in Washington. And these smaller organizations and these small farmers don't really have that same power in Washington. So it's not a level playing field. And just a note on the organic industry, one trend that we've seen as more consumers have identified organic as something that they desire and something that they're willing to pay more money for, you've seen some very big industrial ag companies come in and buy up mom and pop organic operators. So you now, you may not realize it, but you might be buying an organic product in the grocery store that's actually owned by one of those big industrial ag companies. And these industrial ag companies have been trying to shift the organic standard and change what organic actually means. So that's been an ongoing battle as well. What is organic going to look like? Is it really going to be that this chicken that you're purchasing that says it's organic? Are they, have they really been out running around in the sunshine, you know, pecking at the ground? Or have they been locked in a cage near a open door so they can see the sunshine and you know it's, yeah. it's a different thing but that's a really concerning issue for people in agriculture right now as well absolutely yeah they really do blur the line as to like what is free range and what is organic and it's just nuts because if your products are so superior like you say you should stamp Monsanto proudly on every tomato. Scream glyphosate from the rooftops. Why isn't there a glyphosate section of our grocery store where we can go right to those products because they are so much better than all the others? Why are you trying to obscure what comes from where if, if it's just God's gift to the earth, glyphosate? Yeah. Well, that was a question I always had for the companies when this GMO labeling was really becoming an issue. You know, in 2012 and 2013, you had numerous states trying to pass laws to force labeling on food products that were made with genetically engineered crops. And the food industry, Monsanto and the rest of them were really fighting this and saying, God, no, we don't want products to be labeled GMOs, that they were made with GMOs. And that was my question. I was like, why not? You know, why not, why not try to make this a wonderful thing? You say GMOs are so great. Push that, promote that. You know, you'd want to label things as GMO, I would think. But of course they didn't. And they pushed back and used their power in Washington to push federal preemption and get some sort of compromise labeling and things like that out there. So it's all, it's all a political struggle, it seems like, whenever people want truth and transparency about their food. Of course, of course. And another criticism is people say that eating organic is expensive, but I think if you put it in the context of your overall health, it's not that expensive because being in poor health is quite expensive too. Right. I mean, different groups have tried to you know, run numbers on that. You have a report from the National Toxicology Program a few years back that tried to make that point that these chemical exposures and food that we eat and all of this, you, know, you may think you're getting a cheap deal right now and that's the better way to go. But if you look at the healthcare implications and the costs of being sick and medical bills and 
chemotherapies and treatments and lost productivity. It's billions of dollars. It amounts to billions of dollars annually in costs that we pay for the supposed cheap and convenient things that we get from these chemicals. Cheapness and convenience is is often much more expensive than people think, I suppose. Absolutely. That's definitely a layer to all this and a great point. And as we're starting to wrap this story up, you know, last weekend I was in a Vegas hotel, which is the only place I see real TV commercials anymore in hotels. And I was quite happy to see one of those law firm ads. Did you have close contact with glyphosate? Call our offices today. And I heard also that Bayer said they would retire glyphosate in a couple of years, but I think only for retail consumers, which is an odd caveat. I mean, if it's poison, it's poison. But what are these most recent chapters in the glyphosate story? I mean, it seems like there's more class action lawsuits coming out, and it seems like they are actually winding down its use, even though it still seems years away. Yeah, well, Bear has been struggling, the owner of Monsanto, to put this litigation behind it in the United States. They say there are over 100,000 people, like Lee Johnson, the guy in my book, who have claims against the company, saying that they're non-Hodgkin lymphomas due to their exposure to Roundup. So Bayer has put together now about $16 billion. They've told investors they've set aside $16 billion to try to settle the existing claims. But they have been really trying to figure out how in the world are they going to head off claims in the future because they don't want to stop selling it. They definitely don't want to put a warning label on it saying it can cause cancer. If they acknowledge it can cause cancer, you can't spray it directly on food crops anymore. The EPA, you know, that should be disallowed and it could really harm sales and volume use around the world. So what they have said is because most of the claims that they've been facing come from People like Lee Johnson or, you know, Alvin Alberta Piliot, like regular folk that are out there, not farmers, they've said they're going to stop selling it for the lawn and garden market, stop selling it to consumers. And they'll stop doing that by 2023. But they are not going to stop selling it to commercial applicators and farmers. And they are not going to put anything on it that says it causes cancer, they say. So, how they marry that with keeping litigation at bay is a nut they haven't cracked yet. They've put several proposals forward to the federal court judge who's in charge of all this federal litigation and asked him to approve different plans. They wanted to put in place an order that nobody, there couldn't be any trials for four years. The judge said that was crazy. They told the judge they wanted to set up a science panel That would basically mean that juries would not be involved in deciding whether or not it causes cancer anymore. It would be up to a science panel that they would help appoint to decide that question. The judge said, no, bad idea, not going to do it. You know, lots of different problems with the plan. So right now, there's a trial going on in California here in August 2021. And we'll see how that comes out. Bear is trying very hard to get a case to be taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court, and they want the U.S. Supreme Court to agree with them that the fact that the EPA backs them and says that it's safe and fine to sell 
that that should preempt all of these lawsuits and should preempt all of these claims. And if they can get that ruling, then they think they'll be home free. So that's their key strategy right now. Hmm. Yeah, that tactic to remove the product from retail shelves but still sell to commercial farmers seems like a tactic to just get it out of sight, out of mind. There's so many chemicals, as you mentioned, and so many pesticides that go on our food. We don't know the names of it. We don't know the terms. Uh, they're not as, as popularized as glyphosate. So if you can just take Roundup off the local Home Depot shelf, well, I mean, who's really digging into what Big Ag is using? Who's really going to know? You know, people are too lazy to, to dig beyond that surface level. So it seems uh, pretty strategic, I would say. Very strategic and, and aimed, you know, of course, at appeasing investors. Investors have been very angry with Bayer uh, for buying Monsanto. And there have been several investor lawsuits and they've tried to, you know, topple management at Bayer. You know, the stock price uh, has really suffered. Um, Bayer has lost a lot of market capitalization because of its acquisition of Monsanto and and these, you know, this freight train of litigation that's been threatening to run the company down. Uh, and the investors have been very unhappy. So uh, it's been deemed one of the worst corporate acquisitions in history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of the silver linings to me of all these multinational corporations swallowing each other up is that the ones that remain have to pay for the crimes of the ones they absorbed. And it seems like a pretty heavy burden to bear and a real domino effect that can happen. So happy accidents. And I'm happy to see it continue. If they want to keep monopolizing everything and swallowing up more and more stuff till we just have one big corporation, good luck because you're going to have to pay out a lot of people for a lot of unrelated incidents from all the other companies that you bought up. And before we really close this out, we got to save a little time to talk about U.S. right to know. Tell the people what you guys are doing over there, because if we're looking for solutions and we're looking for the right organizations to support, they should know a little bit about this one. Well, yeah, thank you for that. Part of this little tiny nonprofit, we're called U.S. Right to Know, usrtk.org is the website. And we're not super splashy or super polished. But what we do is we file Freedom of Information Act requests and State Records Act requests and really are all about getting data, getting documents, and then putting them up on the website for free. It takes a lot of money sometimes to get these documents, but putting them out there for public consumption, for other journalists to use, or policymakers, or lawyers, or you know, advocacy groups, anybody really who can benefit from this truthful information that's often hard to get. And we know how to do it. I've had to sue the EPA twice and the FDA once. My colleagues are very involved. You know, we get documents from universities around the country and state regulatory bodies and CDC, FDA, USDA, EPA, NIH, you know, a lot of different organizations and groups use our documents and find them quite helpful. And they're the basis for stories in the New York Times and LA Times, you know, newspapers around the world actually have relied on our documents for important stories. So as I said, we're small. We rely on donations. We don't take any corporate money. We only take money from individuals or foundations or not other nonprofits. So we can use all the support we can get. But 
I think it's good work. I think it's honorable work and we're hoping it's helpful in some regard. Yes, definitely. And just so people have a sense of the wider focus, what are some of the non-glyphosate related issues that you guys have been covering? Well, right now, you know, in addition to, and it's not just glyphosate, you know, we look at different pesticides. I do a lot of work on pesticides and agrochemicals, of course. But right now we're looking at the COVID issue, you know, and the origin issue and been focusing on getting emails from the different scientists who were involved in that and trying to track money flow and the different narratives that have been put out and sort of the subterfuge and the contradictions from the public narrative and then what was being discussed privately. And it's really, I mean, I think we can take some credit. Different news outlets have cited our work and our emails that we've obtained as you know, driving the Biden administration's call for an investigation into this origin question. Because it is important to understand gain-of-function research that's going on, that our government has funded, that's going on in laboratories around the world to make, you know, viruses more virulent and understand what that means. There have been lab leaks that have been documented around the world. It's important to understand what we're doing what we're funding and what that means for public health. And if this was a lab leak in some regard, it would be important to know that, right? Mm -hmm. So that maybe we can help (laughs) make sure it doesn't happen again in some way. And we've done a lot of work with CDC documents and shown how CDC is unfortunately has some very powerful connections to very powerful companies like Coca-Cola and other food and beverage interests that, influence CDC work on sugar and obesity and and diabetes and health. And so we're really just, again, trying to expose things that maybe powerful companies don't want out there. (laughs) Yes, there seem to be a range of things you guys focus on, but that is the connective tissue is you're going after the, the big companies out there. I saw stuff about Bill Gates' investments in agriculture, which you mentioned earlier, the sugar lobby and artificial sweeteners. So several issues that are important to this audience. I hope they do check it out. Yeah. And it's important to say that the companies that we have highlighted or the corporate interests or the organizations have really tried to shut us down and have worked really hard to do that. And there are, again, internal documents that show that. So if there are people out there who want to support us, we would welcome that. (laughs) Yes. Cheers. And in terms of social media links, your website, future projects, what should we tell them about following up on this if they want to keep tabs on what you have going on? Yeah. So, well, usrtk.org. We're also on Twitter and we have a Facebook page. And then I'm on Twitter myself. I love for people to follow me and engage. I try to put breaking news and documents up there as much as I can. That seems to be a way to get them out. And my own website, terrygillum.com, you can see articles that I've written. I write for the Guardian news outlet as well, fairly regularly. So you can, the Guardian's an international news agency and post a lot of information there. So um, lots of places to follow me or check it out. And I welcome my website has my email and phone number and I welcome, you know, inquiries and news tips and things like that. So please reach out and 
Tell me your story. <laughs> Phone number. Now that is bold of you. <laughs> That's dedication. Uh, but yes, you also do have a high quality Twitter feed. Rare to see these days, but it is there. A lot of good information I learned just perusing that. So keep up the great work. I really enjoyed both books. You are extremely knowledgeable in your niche, and we are lucky to have you fighting the good fight. And thanks for stopping in to talk to us today. Best of luck and take care out there. Well, you're very kind for having me and back at you. So thank you. <laughs> right on. And boom goes the dynamite. What a dedicated and amazing journalist Carrie is. Just so impressive, if you ask me. I know some people might think that when you consider the full totality that is the THC iceberg, this is not as deep as some of the more out there things we might get into. But I've been looking for creative ways to poke holes through the common phrases we're hearing these days without over-focusing on it directly. These almost evangelical declarations to trust the science and this theme that no matter what unethical or criminal activity a company has been convicted of, in a crisis, we just gotta acquiesce and follow their advice. They're the experts, criminals or not. When we really do know, it's all tainted by their own incentives, and we cannot trust the compromised media to report on things accurately. A lot of people acknowledge the greed and the cutthroat business practices, but I guess they have a belief that there is some magic line that doesn't get crossed, and science is science, and data is data, and that's neutral? But another thing I wanted to remind people of, obviously, is how toothless and arbitrary FDA and EPA approvals for safety can be in today's world. I wish it wasn't that way. Without regulation, it'd probably be worse. But we need some checks and balances to keep the corporate people out of the regulation department. When these companies are willing to spend billions of dollars to capture everything, you got to be pretty vigilant. And we're not. I think we've learned just how easy it is to control the narrative around certain things when a company is committed enough. As Kerry said, the tobacco industry playbook. Definitely still being passed around. And you gotta be pretty dense to not see all these factors in the case of Monsanto and glyphosate. Because it's a pretty glaringly toxic example, yet people still buy it because it's at Home Depot, so it must be okay. That said, all of these themes, to me, are very important in today's world, and with today's dominant narratives and conflicts of interest, I would hope it would be a natural progression, but at the same time, if you were actually presented with the information on how many Midwesterners with a lawn or a garden are still using Roundup, I'm pretty sure you'd be shocked by how many have it in the shed right next to the lawnmower and the blow-up kiddie pool. So we do have a long way to go, but today we talked about a template, a template that I hope more people start applying to other situations and industries, but hey, I just lead the horse to the unfluoridated water. I can't make anybody drink, although the sad state of everything definitely makes me want to. But as a journalist, as an expert in her area, Carrie is so high level. We also recorded this just before this recent FOIA document release that offers even greater evidence that Fauci-funded gain-of-function research on coronaviruses in the Wuhan lab. But I'm sure her organization, U.S. Right to Know, 
usrtk.org is all over it because it only further confirms the perspective she offered on that whole situation when talking about non-glyphosate investigations that U.S. Right to Know is currently involved in. I've heard two recent glyphosate pieces of news as well, one being this emerging data that biofuels being burned and getting into the air is a huge problem because they use glyphosate-soaked corn for a lot of the biofuel, and you really shouldn't be burning that or breathing it in. Some are even saying it's a major exacerbator of COVID symptoms. Obviously, we had a lot of people trying to overlay 5G coverage areas with hot spots, and honestly, I just think it's industrialization in general. Cities are toxic places. EMF exposure, glyphosate burning in the fuel, terrible air and water quality, trash everywhere, very dirty with people packed on top of each other. What are you going to do? Some data did come out about the smoke from California fires being a big factor in COVID hospitalizations. I've heard even mainstream news be willing to say that. So I'm sure this working theory could be in the mix too. Also, on the subject of the California fires, I recently heard that to fight invasive species of trees and to manage the forest in general... They have drilled into certain trees and basically poured glyphosate into the trunk of the tree. And so the forests have these standing, dead, dry trees that would never be there in a natural context. And so that's a whole other thing that we should think about when we just toss chemicals around. Chemicals that probably burn strangely and definitely leave these dead trees sitting there like a tinderbox. Plus, if we wanted to stop the fires, we would just use a Wilhelm Wright Cloudbuster. But in higher side news, we are having a meetup in San Diego. If you want to meet me for some drinks and a casual hang with other THC fans, we're going to be doing that this Sunday, September 19th at 5 p.m., I'll say, at the Tipsy Crow in downtown San Diego. It's the kind of thing that I've wanted to do for a while now. I think I'm just going to stop talking about it and do it. You can talk to Joe or John, tell them you're there to see me, and you should have no weight and no cover. I'm going to bring a little sign-up sheet for any locals that want to be notified if we keep this up, but that's pretty much it. Just trying to find the others and all that. And the Tipsy Crow seems like a great place to start. And I really hope to do more of these across the country and probably make some kind of community calendar where you guys can add your own events, but that is a ways off. So let's see how this one goes first. I'm going to put out another announcement so attendance doesn't rely on listening to this whole episode and making it to this point. Seems like the kind of thing that deserves its own notification, but other than that, Trying to keep the spirits high. I hope you're doing the same. Harder to do these days, I know, but all the more important. And as always, you can sign up for THC Plus. If you only heard the first hour of this interview, support me, get twice as much. In today's episode with Carrie, we talked about why there's a chapter called Lizard Man in her book, how Monsanto's lawyers played as dirty as they could in the courts, other examples of corruption and putting profits over people with Purdue Pharmaceuticals and General Motors, Carrie's thoughts on COVID, the corporations involved in the lab leak narrative, 
and other industrial chemicals that concern Carrie. So as much as you like the free first hour shows I do, how could you not like the full thing? But you know that. So I will let you get on with your day. I hope to see the locals at the Tipsy Crow and have some fun. But until then, I'm getting out of here. Big thanks to Carrie and to you guys for sticking with me. I've done my part. Your move, chemical companies, science suppressors, and poison polluters. Your fucking move. I won't take it. No, I refuse. If it's all right, I'll keep my refuge. I've been scheming of bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer to the inner earth. I built a box, built a whole got a neat elevator going under. And now you'll find me in the bunker. Take it under.